Well, go ahead, and if you want to, you can grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. We'll be there in just a couple of minutes. 1 Peter chapter 1. And on the top of your sheet there, you'll see I've got a couple blanks for you to fill in, going back to the four-step interpretation process that we learned from Mr. Friel. I replaced one of his words. Step three, I mentioned to you last week. Do you, Hills, do you need one? you need a... Okay. Um, step three... I'll get is uh, it was principalization, and I changed it to significance. Uh, not the biggest fan of that word principalization for a few reasons. I think significance is a much better word, and we'll talk about significance starting next week. But what, what's the first step in that four-step interpretation process? Observation, good, so you can write that in. And then the last step, application, good. It would, have, it would have been bad if you guys would have said application first and then observation last. <laughs> so at least we've learned that much together, right, is observation comes first and application comes last. There you go, Cheryl. Good to see you. So uh, what we'll be doing the next three Sundays is focusing on those middle two steps, interpretation and significance, and uh, just kind of filling in what I believe were some gaps that were left in the Friel series on hermeneutics. So hopefully uh, you guys can stay awake <laughs> and engaged and keep tracking, okay? So uh, let's start, as we talk about interpretation, let's talk first about the number of meanings to any given passage, the number of meanings in any uh, given passage in Scripture. And to really nail down how many meanings we believe there are to any passage in the Bible, the first thing that we need to discuss is the alignment of the capital A author slash lowercase a author. What do I mean by author with a capital A and author with a lowercase a? Okay, so we know that all Scripture is inspired by God, right? Right? All right, all Scripture inspired by God. However, God didn't just drop Scripture out of the heavens, bang, there it is on the ground. It came directly from God, from heaven, just dropped there for us. It was through inspired authors that God gave us the Bible. And so there is a human author to Scripture, isn't there? Yet, we know that there's the inspiration of God taking place by way of the Holy Spirit, and so there is an author, capital A, and a lowercase a author. How can we describe, as we think about the process of those men writing Scripture, how can we describe the relationship between the capital A author and the lowercase a author? What's the relationship like? As they were writing Scripture, what was that dynamic like? There are different theories on this, uh, but let's hear if you have any ideas of how that may have worked. Now, I, I know we can't get, like, comprehensive on this, right? But we can at least throw some thoughts out there about how that may have worked. What do you think? Good. Mm -hmm. Good. Yes. Yeah, so sometimes the authors would say, I was caught up, or the Lord showed me, or I saw. Uh, you see that language, like Mark mentioned in Daniel and Revelation, Ezekiel, other places, you see that type of language. What about, like, in Paul's letters? When Paul was writing... The letter of 1 Corinthians, for example, that we've been studying. 
How did that work? What are just some aspects of how that worked? Good. Okay. Very good. Yes. Very good. Yes, because there is a theory called the dictation theory. The dictation theory of interpretation is that basically um, the writers of Scripture became robots. God basically overtook their person and they wrote just exactly what God wanted them to write outside of their own personality, outside of their own manner of writing, etc. Um, this theory should be rejected, and it's pretty obvious why for a few reasons. If you, if you study the Scriptures, you'll see that John kind of has a way of speaking. You read John's Gospel and the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you kind of get to know John a little bit and the way that he approaches things and the way that he writes. That's going to be quite a bit different than Paul. Instance, you read Paul's letters, you kind of get a feeling of how Paul wrote, and he kind of had a way about him. When you get into the Greek, you'll see that, I'll use John as an example again, John's Greek was very simple, both in his gospel and in his epistles. It's so simple, in fact, that a first-year Greek student at the end of the first year can translate the whole book of 1 John, first-year Greek student. That's pretty amazing, pretty simple, right? But then you go to Luke, who was a physician, you go to the book of Hebrews, that's very complex Greek. Different authors wrote with different uh, word choices, different grammar, and so on. So we recognize that Scripture was inspired, but not to the exclusion of the human author's personality and his way of writing, okay? Now, that's a mystery in a lot of ways, right? Because we're recognizing that God is in total control, and what came off their pen was exactly what God wanted them to write. But it wasn't to the exclusion of their freedom of personality and word choice and all of that. When you start talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, our brain kind of gets into a pretzel a little bit. But we just recognize both are true. Both are true. And we get into trouble when we elevate one over the other in that arena. So if we elevate the other side of it and say, well, yeah, you can totally see their personality and their mannerisms. That means that God just gave them an idea, and then they just wrote based on that idea. Well, that's not it either, because every word is God-breathed. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. So it's both and. Both God was in control over the exact words, and they had freedom of personality and word choice and all of that. Pretty amazing, huh? I think that's one of the best examples of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that we have, is just thinking through the inspiration of Scripture. Now, when the human authors were moved along by the Spirit and they were writing Scripture, did they become all-knowing? No, they didn't. They were still limited human beings, right? They were inspired for a specific task. Now, that's important to remember, too. They weren't omniscient when God moved them along. They didn't see the entire picture with all the details. So you go back to the Old Testament, think about Moses writing those first five books of the Bible. Did he become all-knowing to see the whole end of what was going to happen up to the coming of Christ and after the coming of Christ? Well, no. But he knew what God gave him to write. Okay? In that moment, for that time, he knew what God had given him to write. And we can see this in 1 Peter. So if you're in 1 Peter 1, look at verses 10 through 12 with me. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. <clears throat> and would someone read those three verses, 1 Peter 1, 
10 through 12. Mike, you want to go ahead? Right. <clears throat> so we see here that the prophets of the Old Testament, they were getting exactly what God had given them as they were writing, but it wasn't the full picture. It was bits and pieces. They were getting bits and pieces, pu puzzle pieces you could think of. They were contributing to the overall picture of Scripture with their particular pieces that God gave them. Uh, they were looking forward to the Messiah, and they were dealing much more with what was implied about the Messiah. Now, on this side of the cross and on this side of the New Testament, we can look back and see the explicit truths about what Jesus did, how, how Jesus lived, what He taught. We look back and we can read that and we can know for certain what He did on earth in His earthly ministry. For the Old Testament prophets, they were looking forward to that and they were just getting implications of things rather than full-on explanations of things in a lot of ways. They had no access to the same new covenant blessings that we have. Now that we're in the new covenant that Jesus has completed His work, we have the Holy Spirit. That's a new covenant promise. We have the full forgiveness, assurance of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ once for all, and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have a, our heart of stone's been taken out and a heart of flesh has been put in. Okay, so we have this closeness with God through the new covenant. We have a full gospel message in Christ that is allowed us to enter into that covenant. And they didn't have that in the Old Testament when these prophets were writing. And we see here that they were making careful searches and inquiries. That's verse 10. And what were they inquiring of? Well, verse 11, they wanted to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, and then notice he uses the phrase, the Spirit of Christ. That's important. Within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they particularly were wanting to know what person or time. Who is this Messiah looking around? Is He here now? Is He coming? They're looking around. When is He coming? Will it be this generation? Will it be the next? Will it be the one after? So on and so forth. They wanted to know the person and the time. And we see in verse 12 that what was revealed to them was not the full picture, but they were revealed at least this, that they were not serving themselves, but you. So they weren't serving their own generation in the sense that the Messiah was coming very soon, they were serving us who now live, exist, are close to God in the new covenant. They were serving a far-off generation. They weren't serving their immediate generation. And Peter clarifies this by saying, they weren't serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced. They weren't announced then because they didn't have all the details. Jesus hadn't come yet. They have been announced to you now through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we have many great advantages in our knowledge over those Old Testament prophets because of living on this side of the cross and on this side of the completed New Testament. Now, this means that the authors of the Old Testament, so we're still just thinking of the Old Testament, not getting into the New quite yet. Those authors of the Old Testament were only able to write and to understand what God gave them. They were only able to write and to understand what God gave them to write and to understand. And there are two ways to look at that. One way is to say, well, that means they didn't know very much, they didn't understand very much. And yeah, that's compared to what we have today, that's true. I mean, we have all 66 books of the Bible, and we can see a lot more than they can. But at the same time, 
They were given something from God. They were given a message to write, to communicate, and that's at the same time not a lot, but a lot. They had a message from God that was new revelation for their generation that added to what the people had at that time. And so when Isaiah goes out, for instance, and he's got a 66-chapter book, that's a lot of revelation. And so one way of looking at that is saying, wow, if you only had Isaiah and what was written up to the time of Isaiah, that's not a lot. But at the same time, if you were living during that time and all you had was everything up to Isaiah, then Isaiah comes along and you get 66 more chapters. They didn't have chapters then, but you know what I mean? 66 more chapters of God's revelation. Well, that's a lot. That is a lot. So, uh, but the point is they were only able to write and to understand what God gave them, okay? And although the human authors had limited understanding, and this is a big point, even though they had limited understanding, they never had an understanding or meaning or purpose that was at odds with the message that God was communicating. So even though they had a limited understanding and they were finite human beings still, they didn't become omniscient, right? We've, we all agree on that. They didn't become omniscient. What God gave them, they understood. Now, again, they don't have the big picture like we have today, but what God gave them, they understood. In, in that time, at that time, what they had was an understanding from God that was not at odds with the message that God was communicating. What God desired to communicate was perfectly communicated through them. What God wanted to communicate to His people was perfectly communicated through those who were inspired. And the authors understood what they wrote. So, um, this is where we can really kind of get mushy brains, oatmeal brains, okay? Because we don't know everything and we don't want to try to explain it like we know the whole process and how it all worked. But, Again, taking Isaiah, for example, when Isaiah wrote his prophecy, what I'm I'm saying to you is he didn't step back and say, I have no idea what that means. There you go. I don't know what it means, but there you go. I don't think that's the case. Now, did Isaiah know, like take chapter 53, for example, did Isaiah know exactly how everything was going to play out with the Messiah? Not the same way that we do. But was there an indication in what God had given him that he was able to grasp and to understand about the coming Messiah who would suffer. Yes. Yes, there was. And so I believe there was an understanding there, and Isaiah didn't believe anything that was contrary to what God was communicating through him. He understood what God was communicating, and that's the one meaning of the text. There is but one meaning of any given text, and it's what the author communicated, both the divine author and the human author. There is but one meaning. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that? Again, I recognize it's early and that this is heavy, but Stan. Yeah. So when you talk about the interpreters, there were, and we're going to get to that momentarily when we talk about the audience's understanding, but the, uh, the human author, say, we'll just keep using Isaiah as an example. Isaiah received the Word of God from God Himself, he, and it was written down, whether it was by Isaiah or by some scribe or whatever. He received it, and what was written on the page was the Word of God, totally inspired, exactly what God wanted. 
Now, when it comes to who interpreted that, say, the rest, the nation of Israel or the teachers of Israel, is that what you're talking about? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. That's what we're getting to in this lesson. So all that I'm establishing right now is there's one meaning, okay? So uh, the only step we've made so far is there's one meaning, and it's what both the capital A author and the lowercase a author desired to communicate, one meaning. Now, how we find out that meaning, that's where we're going, okay? All right, good. Other thoughts or questions on what we've talked about so far? Okay. Do you agree that there is but one meaning to any given text? Okay. All right. So let's go to the next. Discovering the meaning of the text. That's what Stan's talking about. How do we discover the meaning? And the first thing I want to discuss is the author's intent. Now, when we... uh, Actually, you'll see at the top, the type of hermeneutics we're talking about are contextual, grammatical, Historical hermeneutics. We talked about some of these words in the series before today, but the first thing I want us to think about is the grammatical aspect. When it comes to discovering the author's intent, the first thing you have to do is understand in your own language, as you have the Bible translated in front of you today, what he's saying, just like you would with anything else. If you're reading Shakespeare or something like that, if you want to know what Shakespeare's communicating, you have to have a at least an elementary knowledge of grammar and English and syntax and all that stuff, vocabulary, right? That applies to the Bible as well. Some people will approach the Bible as though it's in a different realm than every other text. In a sense, of course, it is. It is the Word of God. But when it comes to interpreting it, we can't just say, well, you can interpret it any way you want. No. To understand what it means, you have to employ the same type of lenses that you use for anything else, where you just have to understand by basic grammar, what's being said. Now, you can go deeper in the sense that uh, you can look at the original Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, and that's great, and you will get more out of it, but you don't have to because God has provided the Bible in your language. It's been translated into your language, and we have good, faithful translations. And so that's step one. Step two, there's a level of historical accounting that's needed. Now, I'll just use a real basic example. Think of uh, Joseph when he was in Egypt at the end of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis. When we say Joseph, we're not thinking of this Joseph, right? (laughs) Okay, we at least, I mean, just think real basic. We understand that there was a historical Joseph, son of Jacob, who was in a specific situation at a specific time. So that's just real basic. You're accounting for that history. Now, believe it or not, there are people who interpret the Bible in such a way that they would use it to say, hey, Joseph, God's got a word for you, Joseph Martin, because look, your name's right here, and it says, you know, God said to Joseph, blah, blah, blah. No, can't do that, okay? Now, this is pretty basic, but, you know, we're understanding that this stuff has to be incorporated. Uh, Joseph was in Egypt. Well, there's a town in Texas called Egypt. Is that talking about the town in Texas? No, it's not. It's talking about an actual nation 
called Egypt. And it existed at that time with specific boundaries, okay? When Pharaoh took off his signet ring and gave it to Joseph. Okay, now getting a little deeper, we can't just gloss over things like that. We understand that the signet ring had some sort of meaning in that historical context, didn't it? That the signet ring meant something, that that action meant something. And so you incorporate that into your knowledge too. Basic historical stuff where you don't just gloss over it or you don't take it and twist it and make it mean something else. You got to understand to a certain degree the history. Now, you can use extra biblical resources to deepen your understanding of history. There's all kinds of good stuff out there that you could pick up a book, a handbook to the Bible, a commentary, whatever it is, and you can learn a lot about all kinds of things that were going on in that historical situation that will add more color to your Bible reading. But those things are not necessary for you to understand the Bible. They're helpful, but they're not necessary. You don't have to do seminary-level work to understand your Bible. You can understand basic grammar, basic history, all on your own, okay? You can do that. God's given you a brain, and for most of you, it functions well, all right? <clears throat> so, the grammar, the history, and then thirdly, the context. So, grammatical, uh, historical, and then contextual is kind of a, a summary word that incorporates those uh, other two aspects. But when I talk about context, I mean a little more than that. It's some uh, things like, thoughts like this, the author will not contradict himself. So, you've probably been in conversations like this before where someone turns to, you know, say the book of 1 Corinthians, and, uh, or maybe you turn to 1 Corinthians when you're talking to this person, and you say, okay, look, Paul says this. And then they'll turn later in 1 Corinthians, they'll say, oh, but he also says this. Okay? It's almost like they're saying, well, see, he contradicted himself in the same letter. He wrote this letter to them, and he said, X here, and he said, Y here. Well, we don't believe that under the inspiration of God that a human author would write a letter, and especially in the same letter, but even at all, would contradict himself, or that John would contradict Paul, or that uh, Peter would contradict Ezekiel, right? So we understand in context there's harmony, and the human authors, as they wrote Scripture, they would not abandon plain communication to their audience. So perhaps someone, going back to the Joseph example, perhaps someone literally believes that there was an actual Joseph who went down to an actual Egypt and that Moses is describing this in the book of Genesis with an historical account and it's plain English and it's literal. And then all of a sudden, in one chapter, it all becomes supernatural spiritual that you have to look for some sort of uh, code that's built in. It's like, well, wait a second. He was writing a literal account to give us information about a literal scenario. And then all of a sudden you think, He's inserting hidden codes in there? No. The contextual hermeneutic doesn't allow for that. When we talk about in context, we're talking about the author and his plain communication writing something for us to understand. All right? Um, so that's the author's intent. We're using these three things, grammar, history, and the context, in pursuit of wanting to know what the author intended us to understand. So uh, if you want to think of just an over, overarching... Uh, big picture, how do we discover the one meaning of any given text? It's pursuing the intended meaning of the author. That's it. it. Pursuing the intended meaning of the author. If you come up with an interpretation, so this starts to answer your question a little bit, Stan. When you come up with an interpretation that contradicts what the author intended, you have misunderstood the passage. And so the great question is, well, how can we ever be sure that we understand what the author intended? 
You know, things can get tough sometimes, but for 99% of the passages you look at, it's going to be clear. And you're going to recognize goofy, unorthodox, bad interpretations right off the bat. You'll notice them. Okay. But there are some that are more difficult. Another thing to consider, in addition to the author's intent, is the audience's understanding. And there are two reasons why this is helpful to consider how the audience would have understood. And when I say the audience, I'm talking about the original recipients of the message. So, First Peter, those he wrote to, putting yourself in their shoes and think about how would they have heard this, okay? So, there are two reasons why this is important. One, we, we don't want to say that their perception was inspired. We know that what was written was inspired, but how people received that, that wasn't necessarily inspired. So, you've got to have that caveat in there. Um, but each author had a specific audience in mind, and his message was written to suit that audience, so when there are illustrations used, for example, uh, by an author, when he's trying to make a certain point and he's pulling something from their context, Jesus did this all the time, didn't he, in his parables and things, pulling something from their context to make a point, well, you've got to kind of put yourself in their shoes and say, how would they have heard that? When you talk about separating the, uh, the chaff from the wheat, uh, winnowing forks and all of that stuff and the, the wine press. You start thinking through those types of illustrations, it's helpful to put yourself in their sandals to understand how they would have heard that. Okay, this author is saying this, and he's using this illustration. So what did that mean to them? Because for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot today because we're so far removed in those ways. And even the way that certain things were phrased based on their culture or on their language, it's helpful to consider. And then secondly, in the realm of application... We have to first consider how a text applied to the original audience before we figure out how it applied to us. So the first thing we consider is, how did that apply to them in their lives, the way that they lived and what they had in their culture? That's the first step before we think about how it applies to us. So in both interpretation and application, it's important to consider how the original audience understood a text, okay? Before we move on to deep, deeper hidden meanings... I'll stop there and see if there are any questions about author's intent or audience's understanding. Doing all right? Good. Okay. Should have uh, brought Gatorades for everybody, but you're doing good. Okay, I'm seeing your eyes open. That's good. So uh, let's talk about deeper hidden meanings for a moment. There's a long tradition in Bible interpretation where it's advocated that people look for spiritual meanings behind the text. It started with a church father, well, I shouldn't say it started with, but he made it more popular, I guess. A church father named Origen, you've probably heard of Origen. Um, he taught that there were three different levels of reading Scripture, and the deepest third level was a spiritual interpretation of the text, um, especially certain texts, looking for allegory where there is no allegory, and this can be called spiritualization spiritualizing a text to draw out something that is, you know, makes you feel more spiritual as the reader. Um, and I want to give you a, a very exaggerated example of this so you can see. Turn with me to Luke 10, and let's look at the Good Samaritan parable. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 30. Luke chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 30 to 37. That covers... Uh, the whole parable. You're familiar with this parable, of course, but perhaps there are deep 
hidden meanings that you've never seen before. And I'm going to offer you some commentary from one church father that will just blow your mind, okay? So let's have someone read verses 30 to 37, Luke 10, 30 to 37. Who's got it? Stan, go ahead. Yep, Levite, yep. Denari. All right, so you read through this like you have several times before, and you think, okay, what does God want us to get from this passage? Well, you could just settle with at the end where Jesus says, go and do the same, and all the implications of that command. But Augustine wasn't content with that. Let me read to you Augustine's commentary on this. So look back up at verse 30, where it says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He says of this certain man that Adam is meant. This is talking about Adam. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho, which in the original language means the moon, it signifies our mortality because the moon is born, it waxes, it wanes, and it dies. So Adam fell from heaven to the moon where he waxes, wanes, and dies. Okay, Uh, still in verse 30. Where the robbers are mentioned, it says the robbers are the devil and his angels. Did You didn't catch that the first time, did you? <gasps> they stripped him. That means they stripped him of his immortality. They beat him. That means they persuaded him to sin. And it le- they left him half dead, it says at the end of verse 30, because insofar as man can, be, can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. Therefore, he is half dead. That's just verse 30. Verse 31, the priest and the Levite who are mentioned, well, they saw him and they passed by. That signifies the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. The Samaritan mentioned in verse 33, well, that word means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signifying the name. Jesus was speaking of himself when he said the Samaritan. The binding of the wounds, that means restraining sin. Oil, that means comfort and good hope. Wine, that's exhortation to work with fervent spirit. 
Okay. The beast, in verse 34, put him on his beast. Well, the beast is the flesh in which Jesus stooped to come to us. And being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn that's talked about is the church, where travelers returning to their heavenly country are refreshed after their pilgrimage. The morrow, when it mentions the next day, well, that's talking about after the resurrection of the Lord. The two denarii are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life, or the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and of that which is to come. I like how on that one, he was saying everything, this means this, this means this, and it's like it's also plain and clear. <laughs> then when he gets to the two denarii, he says, well, that could be either this or this. It's hard to tell. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> he says the innkeeper is the apostle Paul. Not Peter, not John, but Paul. The payment, the supererogatory super payment, it's an interesting word, is either the counsel of Paul's celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands, lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren. There you go. Now you know more about the Good Samaritan parable. Now that is a very extreme example, okay? Uh, very rarely do you see something like that, but they do exist, especially in church history, especially longer ago, where these church fathers looked for a deeper meaning behind the passage. And we would never let someone preach that passage that way in this church. I mean, you, you can't say that that's what Jesus intended. You ask 20 people to come up, you can ask people to come up with a deep hidden meaning parable, and you're going to get 2,000 different answers, right? Because how could you ever know that anything means anything? It's a deep hidden meaning. So that's, again, an extreme example. But there's another example that I saw recently from Tim Keller, more popular name, and this is much more mild. This type of spiritualization is much more mild. But do you remember the story in Judges 19 about the man who had a concubine, and he was traveling, and he ended up giving his concubine over to a roaring crowd, and she was raped, and she was killed. And then he ended up cutting her into 12 pieces and sending the 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember that story? Not an exactly uh, uplifting story, right? But Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, talking about how should a preacher preach a text like this, he said, when we see a man who sacrifices his wife to save his own skin, a bad husband, how can we not think of a man who, is sac who sacrificed himself to save his spouse, the true husband? So Tim Keller says the appropriate way to preach that text is to make a direct link as a type-anti-type -type relationship between the man who sacrificed his concubine and Jesus who sacrificed himself to save the bride, the church. So that is, again, much more mild, and perhaps you would hear a sermon like that and think, okay, that's a nice application. But first we go back to author's intent, and what was the author's intention for us to understand from that story? And secondly, how do we, as believers in Jesus Christ, now in the church, handle and apply that text? to the church. And I don't think I would apply it the way that Keller did, because I don't think that's appropriate. I just don't think that's an appropriate way of handling that text. I don't think that's the meaning of that text. I don't think we're to see that particular Levite as a type, anti-type of Christ. If we start designating our own types and anti-types between the Old Testament and New Testament, where does that end, right? 
and I struggle with that. So, um, all that to say, I think hidden meanings are incredibly subjective and overall unhelpful. I think hidden meanings are just totally subjective. You could never prove it, and they're unhelpful to understanding the text. They seek to add something to the plain reading of the text, and I don't believe our text needs that. I don't think Scripture needs that. I think Scripture on its own is sufficient, and how Scripture interprets Scripture should lead us in our interpretation of Scripture. So if we're going outside of Scripture by finding hidden meanings, where does that end? Where can you say that you've gone too far? I struggle with that. Uh, I don't see how you could ever say that you've gone too far unless you uh, say, well, if it's sinful, then it's too far. But you can come up with a lot of things before you reach the sinful point, okay? Those who take the view that there are deep hidden meanings in the text believe that to understand the meaning of a given text, the whole canon is necessary. So to understand the meaning of Judges 19 and that story of the man and his concubine, to understand that story, we would need the whole canon of the text. Because the whole canon of the text then gives us deeper insight that we can insert back into that passage. But that's not true. The original author and the original audience did not have as much as we have today, yet they understood the meaning of the text, didn't they? They didn't have the New Testament. They weren't living on this side of the cross, and yet they were still able to understand the text, weren't they? There was one author, uh, one author's intent, a divine author and a human author, one meaning, and they were able to understand it then. Okay? Thoughts or questions on, on that? Jokes. Yep. So where I'm comfortable is stopping where the Bible stops on that. So the Bible presents to us types and shadows. Certain, so Hebrews is full of them in pointing these out. Um, it talks about Moses, for instance, is a type of Christ. Moses himself even said this in Deuteronomy 18 that he's a prophet and there's coming a day where God will raise up a prophet like him. Okay, so we see that there's a relationship. Uh, Romans 5 there's a type-anti-type relationship with Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, um, right? Now, uh, we have some in the New Testament. It's not like we have countless ones in the New Testament. But the ones that we have, I'm com comfortable just taking those and stopping with those. There are some that the Bible doesn't touch on that seem like they're appropriate. Uh, so, for instance, a popular one is um, Boaz. You've probably heard that Boaz is a type of Christ, He's a kinsman redeemer, and that Jesus came in flesh, and he redeemed those in the flesh, a kinsman redeemer in that regard. Um, that one seems really close, uh, but the Bible doesn't, it doesn't say that that's a type anywhere. Uh, now, if someone uses that, am I going to throw stones? No, I'm just not comfortable going there. Um, another popular one is the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember when Abraham was told to go up and sacrifice your son? Now, this one has some problems because you look at that and you think, okay, it's a father told to sacrifice his son, but he didn't sacrifice his son, did he? Because God stopped him. So actually, maybe the goat that was caught in a thicket <laughs> is a better type because the goat got sacrificed, or the ram. So um, that's just something to think about. If the Bible doesn't go there, and the Bible doesn't say that that was a type, so the, if the Bible doesn't go there, then we should just be extremely cautious at the least. Um, but as a teacher and a preacher of the Word of God, I just stop where the Bible stops on that. So. 
other thoughts or questions? Okay. Okay, two things, immediate context and broader context. So, um, to repeat what I just left off with, the original author and the original audience did not have as much revelation as we have, yet they understood the meaning that God gave them. So, whenever you're looking at any given text, you want to look first at the immediate context. That means you pay attention to the flow of the book that you're in. So if you're in the book of Romans and you're looking at a text in the book of Romans, you want to see how whatever text you're looking at fits with the flow of all of Romans. So you go to Romans 7, and Paul's talking about how uh, that which he wants to do, he doesn't do. That which he, he wants to avoid, he keeps on doing. Okay? So you, you look at that passage in a vacuum, and perhaps you could make that passage say some things that Paul wasn't communicating. Well, first step is to look at the immediate context. Okay? Again, considering... Uh, grammar and history, but then also looking at the immediate context of what the author is trying to communicate. Narratives in the Bible, those stories that we have in the Bible of, you know, think of the book of Genesis or First and Second Samuel, the Kings, all of that, narratives are organized with intention. The human author is including details of a story for a purpose. The human author is thinking about what he wants his audience to understand, and so certain details are included and other details are not included. No book of the Bible contains a comprehensive account of, I think, anything that has happened. We don't know. Think of the book of John. John admits at the end of his book, this is just a smidge of what Jesus did, because if I tried to include everything that Jesus did, there just wouldn't be enough books in the world to include all of that, right? And so, what he included in his gospel, he had intention to include. There's a reason why he cut certain aspects of the stories out, but included certain things, like the I am statements of Christ. There are multiple I am statements of Christ that were included because John was highlighting something through including those. And the miracles that John included that are unique to the book of John that aren't found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John included those for a purpose. And so you look at the immediate context and see why that's being said in relation to the other passages in that same book. Teaching passages like epistles, they are direct in their tone, and there's an argument to follow. Uh, you look at so many of Paul's letters, and it's pretty clear how his argument breaks down a lot of times. Uh, for instance, you think of the book of Ephesians. He starts off in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3. Again, chapters aren't original, but essentially the first half of the book. He starts off by saying, here's who you are in Christ. The next three chapters of the book, the last three, the second half, here's how you are to live in light of who you are in Christ. That's as, about as basic as you can get, but it starts to give you an idea of what Paul's doing in his letter. Uh, he does that in other letters in the book of Romans. You can see the argument being built upon the theme of God's righteousness. God is righteous. Now, how, what does that mean in relationship to us as fallen creatures in our sin? That's chapters 1 through 3. What does that mean? in our relationship to our salvation and how we are saved. That's the next few chapters. And you go on and on, and you see how he's building his argument throughout the book. The author communicated to his audience exactly what God wanted him to, and so we go after that first. We look at the immediate context of the letter. And this is why I find charting to be helpful. Oops. I um, learned this in Bible college. I took uh, a few classes that were just on certain books. So, I took a class on the book of Romans. I took a class on the book of John. And uh, 
I'll use John as an example because that's another one that's pretty simple. But you have the book of John, and as you start reading it, if you want to chart it, you can see certain areas where uh, there are breaks to where he changes his focus in the letter. So you've got the introduction of the book, which is, I think, the first 16 verses, okay? And then you have the, um, you have Jesus come on the scene, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and he starts doing things. This is chapters 2 through, uh, I think, 12, I think 12, maybe 11, so either 11 or 12. You have Jesus performing miracles. Jesus performing miracles. So what's the first miracle that Jesus performed in John 2? Do you remember? Good, yeah. Water into wine, okay? And then you've got at least 13 through 17. Again, it might be 12 through 17. Then you have Jesus instructing. And it's mainly His disciples. This is called the Upper upper Room Discourse. They're in the upper room. It's before the uh, introduction of the Lord's Supper. And there He is, and you see a lot of teaching from Jesus to His disciples. And so we have these pretty hard breaks in the book, and you can see just from this zoomed-out view, there are a lot of other things to break down in that book. But just from this, there's a structure and there's a flow to the book of John. That's the immediate context of the book. And again, there's more to it, but I think maybe that will help you just to see from a basic standpoint that the author is doing something as he's writing. He's making breaks, he's making decisions in how he's communicating. But we don't stop with just the immediate context, okay? It's the first thing we look at, the first place we go, is to look at the author's intent in that book. But then we also broaden it and see how it fits in the whole Bible. We don't have just the Gospel of John that was given to us. Praise the Lord, right? Now, if we just had the Gospel of John, that would be the, a great one book to have, as would Romans and some others, but we have the whole Bible. And so, it is important to consider how it fits in the whole of Scripture. Um, it's not something that we exclude from our thinking at all, but you cannot rightly consider the broader context without first grasp, grasping the immediate context. So, first is the immediate context. You could even you can even think if there's just one verse you're examining that someone has brought up to you, first thing you do is look at the verses surrounding it, right? Go three verses up, three verses down, that sort of thing. Next thing you do is look at the chapter. Next thing you do is look at the book. How does it fit in the book? And the next thing you do is see how it fits in all of Scripture. In that order, okay, that's how we study and examine Scripture, broad strokes speaking. There is a harmonious storyline throughout the Bible. There are coordinated themes throughout the Bible. And so it will all fit together in the whole of Scripture. Taking the whole of the Bible into account will absolutely help you understand more about any given topic. Someone wants to learn more about gender roles, the whole of the Bible is going to help. Today we're talking in the sermon, I'm preaching on miraculous sign gifts that were given to the early church. Now, are there certain one passages you could look at? Yeah, I think if you go to Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, or to Ephesians 2, 20, go to one of those places, you could probably see in one verse the idea, but to get the whole theme, you're going to have to start incorporating in broader context, okay? Um, So it's important to consider all of Scripture. The great challenge in Bible interpretation is seeing how all the pieces fit together. You're not seeing if they fit together, you're seeing how they fit together. And that's the real challenge 
when you're talking about really big, broad categories of theology or doctrine. So we want to take the single meaning of all texts. You've got 50 texts in front of you that are all on the same topic. You want to take the single meaning of each of those and not change that meaning. And you want to synthesize them and see how they all fit together to start to put together where you are doctrinally and theologically. That's tough. It takes work. But it's the call of the Christian who's been given the Word of God to study, to learn, to grow, to know what it is that God has said. So immediate context, broader context, okay? We have about five minutes. I can take any questions that you might have about these things, or we could just awkwardly stare at each other for the next 300 seconds. Yep. Yeah, that's a very common one. Yeah. People will look at, um, they'll go to Paul, and Paul says, you know, Romans 5.1, for example, we have peace with God having been justified by faith. And then you go to James 2, and he says, you see, we're not justified by faith alone, but we're justified by works also. All right, so now you've got two verses plucked out, boom, head to head. It's like a boxing match, right? Who's going to win? Well, that's built on a false presupposition that the Bible contradicts itself. One of the presuppositions that we bring to the Bible, that we hold on to, is that God is harmonious in His revelation. God is not going to contradict Himself in His revelation. We go back to how Scripture was inspired. So we uphold both things. What came off the author's pen is exactly what God intended for it to come off their pen. However, they were also, with their own personality, their own manner of speaking, their own grammar choice, speaking to a certain context, to a specific audience for a specific purpose. So when you start examining it that way and you start looking at the immediate context and broader context, we start to resolve issues like that. Yes. They, yeah, he was, the two authors are different authors, writing with different purposes. Uh, so, if you don't consider that, and you just take every verse in a vacuum, well then, yeah, we've got big problems. But when you think, no, these were actual human beings dealing with actual issues that God was using to address uh, certain problems in the church and in the world, oh, well, they're there's explanations then for why they would have worded things the way they did. Okay. Two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always good to challenge yourself because there are presuppositions we bring to the text that we don't let go of ever. Uh, that God is. That's a real basic one. That God has spoken. That God doesn't contradict Himself. That the authors were inspired, and what we have today is the Word of God. We don't let go of any of those things. But we also bring some other presuppositions uh, when you start especially getting into the secondary category of doctrine. Uh, 
believe this about how this works and that about how that works. And there are other believers who believe differently than we do. And we need to let them challenge us. We need to be open to that and be challenged by that as insofar as they're basing their argument on the Word of God. Uh, so there will be issues, and I was talking to uh, somebody earlier this week about this. It seems like there are seasons you go through in the Christian life where, because especially when you think, think about secondary doctrine, we don't, we're not fully, truly confident with God's confidence in any secondary doctrine we believe, right? You shouldn't be. Because these are doctrines that you could be wrong about. By definition, these are doctrines that you might be wrong about. Now, I'm not, so I'm not talking about the gospel. You have God's confidence with the gospel. You've got God's confidence with the Word of God. But you've got these secondary things. And it seems like there are seasons in the Christian life when it's like God's just got you on that issue, and it's like He's not going to let you rest until you figure it out. You're just wrestling with it. Because it's in your spirit. You just can't rest until you settle somewhere. And that could go on for a while. It could go on for a short time. Uh, meanwhile, while we're wrestling with this one or one issue or these two issues, there are a whole bunch of other ones that we're just kind of content with, well, I don't really know, but I've landed here, and it's just, I'm, I'm okay with that for a while. And it's just weird how that happens. But as God has your mind on something and has you wrestling with something, see that as a gift and take hold of it and say, okay, I'm going to wrestle with this for a while. And then you may end up kind of coming back full circle and saying, eh, I still kind of lean this way, but I don't know. But you're just almost kind of released from struggling with it. And that's okay. But take advantage of those moments and see it as a prompting from God to figure it out as much as you can. So it's good. Okay. That's about it, unless someone's got a 15 second question uh, and answer. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's scheduled for right after your funeral. Uh, so. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again so much for your word, and we do just desire to handle your word rightly. Please give us clarity of thought, give us wisdom, uh, and just give us a, a heart to study that we would honor you rightly with the way that we handle your revelation. We thank you for what's ahead today, the opportunity to worship you corporately, to be encouraged, to encourage one another, and to be built up in our most holy faith. And we ask all these things and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.